0: Hello, and welcome to Embodying Change, a podcast about cultivating care and compassion in aid and development. I'm Melissa Pitati, and this podcast is part of an initiative I'm working on with Mary Ann Clements, which is being hosted by the CHS Alliance. Our work looks at the intersections between mental health, people management, and organizational culture using the lens of care and compassion. Today, you'll hear me talk with Brendan McDonald, co-founder and Chief Operating Officer of Uncomfortable Revolution. When we were researching for the Working Well paper, his name kept coming up because of his and others' efforts to get aid worker well-being put on the agenda of the World Humanitarian Summit. I wanted to find out what happened and what we can learn from that experience. This conversation touches on a variety of issues, and I'm gonna tell you in advance that it it gets real. The issue of suicide comes up. So I wanted to say that if you are in distress and want to talk to someone, there are many resources available worldwide, including at www.befrienders.org. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here we go welcome brendan mcdonald
1: hi melissa how are you
0: (laughs) good Um, for those who might be listening who don't know you so brendan mcdonald is the co-founder and chief operating officer of uncomfortable revolution according to your bio you live with leukemia and peripheral neuropathy you're a twitter geek and a humanitarian who's lived and worked in a lot of places including kosovo north korea Sri Lanka, Libya, Jordan, and Iraq. You've experience in information management and crisis communications, often in war-torn countries. You're a great storyteller who knows how to keep communities engaged and never tires of a food called kimchi, even for breakfast. Um, and I really like your superpower, which is karaoke. You even sang Do Re Mi from The Sound of Music with North Korea's vice foreign minister. Is that right? That is right. Wow. How was that?
1: It was fun because in North Korea, at official dinners and business meetings, everything is agreed before you have the meeting. And the only time business gets done is at the end of the meal, when everyone is quite drunk on soju, <laughs> the Korean uh-huh. white liquor, brandy. Mm-hmm. And people relax and sing. And then you can say a little bit more because the Koreans will trust you more because they believe that when you're drunk, <laughs> authentic person is revealed.
0: Aha, that's good. We can talk about that later in our conversation because I think that comes up in in the life of humanitarian workers and other places too. Yes. does. Great. How, how, what else would you like to say about yourself?
1: And I'm speaking to you from beautiful town of Citta, St Angelo, mm-hmm. uh, which is in the province of Pescara, on the Adriatic Sea, about two and a half hours from Rome. And I've just been here for two, actually in this house for just over a week, but in Pescara for about a month.
0: All right, and everything's okay with the COVID?
1: Getting worse and worse every day in Italy. Uh, I think the yesterday's numbers were 31,798 cases yesterday and 297 deaths without making it legal, mm-hmm. but encouraging everyone to stay within their own commune and to not travel between regions and absolutely necessary and bars and restaurants are closed after six, but still people are socializing in homes, which I think mm-hmm. is the big issue.
0: Yeah, I'm here in Geneva and they've just announced stricter measures in Geneva than in the rest of Switzerland, but a lot of closures uh, because the, the the wave just gotten out of control, it's overwhelming hospitals here. So with, with that in mind, I wanted to tell you that I've been really looking forward to talking with you um, over a year now. Uh, when I was researching for the paper I co-authored with Marianne Clements on aid worker well-being, a paper that was published with CHS Alliance, uh, your name came up several times as we are researching what has already been done in the area of aid worker well-being. And so I was curious to start the talk um, by knowing a little bit about why uh, you yourself have been interested in aid worker well-being.
1: It actually stems from many years ago when I was in the Australian Army. And one of the things that they would very consciously teach you as part of first aid in the military was... They didn't call it mental first aid, but the idea of being very aware of mental health conditions, of depression, uh, some signs of suicide, because, you know, in fact, the very first army unit I was in, a week before I arrived, a young soldier had killed himself. So you did have a high rate of suicides. And as an officer, you were trained to be more cognizant of it. And then, of course, in preparation, if you were ever on operations, to be aware of PTSD and the effects of you know, sustained operations on individuals and then when I came into the aid world it shocked me that none of that was present and from then I started getting interested in it mm-hmm. uh, first in Kosovo where where a staff member died international staff member died in uh, very difficult circumstances substance abuse mm-hmm. and the NGO I was working for immediately flew in a team of counsellors and started holding these meetings with our Kosovar staff saying Oh, I know some of you must be grieving. It's a really tough time for you now. And my staff was so angry, the Kosovar staff. because mm-hmm. it's like, so we've been with you in the refugee camps in Macedonia. Um, some of us lost our family members, so have had our own trauma living through conflict. Mm-hmm. And not once you speak to us about the trauma we have lived as mm-hmm. staff members working for care and, of course, as, as refugees and IDPs. Mm-hmm. Um, but soon as so, I expat aid worker dies you Mm -hmm. suddenly are all over yourselves with the concept of um Mm. counselling and various permutations of that type of view Mm -hmm. on mental health uh I saw throughout my career.
0: Wow this is really touching on a lot of things we've seen with our own mapping um the anger that you touch on from your experience at Kosovo we we've seen um a lot of challenges with regard to the equity or inequity of how staff can access support. If there is support at all, it's not necessarily equally accessible depending on your background. So we've seen that come up as as an issue. Yes, and then
1: the other aspect of it, which I've never understood in the UN is even if you take the perspective of simply productivity or efficiency of your workers, Mm -hmm. Um, the more staff that are burnt out, fatigued, the concept of presenteeism, Mm -hmm. um, your efficiency drops as an entity. Mm -hmm. So you're always screaming for more money, but if you're better at looking after your staff, you would actually be much more productive. And that has never been seen as an important issue from any of the managers I experienced.
0: One of the things you wrote that really uh, resonated with me, I think you made a business case where you ex- kind of looked at some of the figures, how much you'd actually save by investing in s- staff well wellbeing. Um, because uh, one of the challenges we've had in getting um, some traction with upper level management is this idea, well, tell us what's the return on investment <laughs> so to speak. And I think you did in your own business case. Am I right there?
1: Yeah, it was a number of years since I've read it. But I think the the, EC had done some studies in Europe in the general population on the topic of um, people going to work when mentally ill or exhausted, that the tea is an issue. Um, And there's been various other studies done where when staff are unwell, either mentally or physically, they're obviously less productive. The challenge in the UN of translating the business case, Mm -hmm. I guess a is generally, is we're not very good at being efficient in any case, right? So the amount of gross, ine- gross gross inefficiencies that we would see, and I'm thinking particularly of, the, of my time in the UN, pale in comparison to the inefficiencies of, of having staff who are burnt out. So you can't even measure efficiency in the UN. So how can you make a business case to say that you'll be more efficient if you have healthy staff?
0: Another reason I wanted to talk with you, Brendan, is because you and uh, several of your... I don't know if they were friends or acquaintances, came together and provided uh, space for many aid workers to raise their voice through a petition, uh, a petition that was signed before the World Humanitarian Summit um, that was very specific in what it was requesting, um, basically for aid worker well-being to be raised on the agenda of the WHS. Could you talk a little bit about that experience?
1: First of all, I was internally disciplined within OCHA for Raising and starting the petition. Secondly, OCHA management and particularly uh, the USG at the time, it really wasn't an issue. Um, Kang Hwa, who was uh, the Assistant Secretary General and now South Korean Foreign Minister, is very supportive. But generally across the board, senior managers at OCHA thought the topic of aid worker wellness was not a real priority. And when they talked about wellness, they primarily saw it in the concept of physical security of staff. You know, I do you have enough armored vehicles, remote operations, et cetera, et cetera, but not talking about actual staff's wellness per se.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I think we got one or two lines in the entire WHS report on this topic. Mm-hmm. And there was, you know, there was uh, ILS international location services were actively involved. A couple of others, uh, I'm going to forget their names now. So, but yeah, there there was a a coalition of people trying Mm -hmm. to make this happen, but generally senior managers weren't on board.
0: Because I think it was, uh, I've seen one one petition portal on the website. It was over a thousand people signed, but I think even more uh, had signed it. Um, and and I, I liked how it was very specific about investing in mental health support, but also looking at other things like uh, even the core humanitarian standard itself, supporting that. You also had uh, some coverage in The Guardian, I remember.
1: Yeah, so I, I wrote a, for want of a better word, an op-ed in The, in the Guardian. Mm-hmm. Again, Ocha was not happy about that, mm-hmm. uh, to raise awareness of this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was read widely read and shared. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that was also part of the, my disenfranchisement. I don't know if that's the right word. Certainly, I felt a lack of support in OCHAF f- for me as a manager. Mm-hmm. Um, and I grew at that time very wary and tired of the UN management, their approach to these issues. And it also happened at the same time as my leukemia. Um, So it was a coming together of things.
0: So uh, five years later, I think there might be another opportunity given the confluence of events now um, with COVID, with uh, a lot of eyes on the sector in terms of how it's working, whether it's inclusive, whether it's compassionate. What advice would you have based on what you learned through that very intense experience you went through yourself, what advice would you have for people who are now saying, we wanna try to do this again? We wanna try to raise this issue on the agenda and get more um, leadership, more people who are in leadership to support this, to prioritize this, to put resources behind it. Um, What advice would you have?
1: I think there needs to be a coalition of change agents across the sector, and there needs to be a number of number of high-level advocates. So the level of Assistant Secretary General, Under Secretary General in the UN language, um, equivalent levels amongst, um, uh, whether it's CHS or InterAction or some of these other bodies, um, because it's really hard to engineer change Unless it's endorsed at the senior level. But the UN is littered, Aid World is littered with good intentions. And many years ago when I was first in North Korea, I remember reading people in aid and then the sphere standards and trying to use them. Mm-hmm. And there was no shortage of wonderful guidelines. I mean IASC had some wonderful guidelines, which I think are probably maybe 10 years old or more about mm-hmm. mental health for aid workers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So policy exists, the framework exists for this but people just don't do it. Um, and I think certainly from the UN perspective or certainly from Archer's perspective, managers were never recruited on their management abilities. And I don't have a lot of broad experience beyond the military and, and the sector itself, mm-hmm. but by and large, people were recruited on their ability either to do technical work mm-hmm. or to achieve results. Even if those results were achieved with bullying, um, and I've seen the predominant culture of senior managers that I experienced, mm-hmm. not all of them, where it was a bullying culture. Mm-hmm. You achieved results by being a bully. Um, and all headquarters cared about was visible results, right? So if it was seen that the humanitarian coordinator or the head of office or the UN agency director, representative, was delivering no one really cared how they treated their staff I and mean, there was managers that had reputations for bullying and their careers continued um and when it was raised that was never seen as an issue because bullying and i think studies across other sectors have shown this that it's it's a bad managers or a bullying environment or a toxic environment that give rise to the most Stress and anxiety in a workplace. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, for my last sort of field deployment was Iraq, and we were dealing with, you know, ISIS at its peak, and our staff were working hell hours, but it was the internal management issues that caused the most stress. Likewise, dealing with the Syria crisis, our staff were exhausted because of mismanagement issues rather Mm -hmm. than exhausted because they're exposed to the vicarious trauma of what was happening in Syria. And then I was managing a number of staff in Iraq who were, in the early days, we had a helpline set up where Iraqis could call and they were dealing, talking to some Yazidi women who were trapped um, and surrounded by ISIS. Mm. And there was literally nothing we could do. Mm. My staff were asking, you know, what do we say to them? And I was saying, we will pass information about their situation to the Iraqi authorities, which was useless. And I asked headquarters, you know, what can we, what can I do to help manage my staff better, because they're dealing with, with, very clearly um, vicarious trauma with what they're seeing. We also had TV screens with the social media streams of what was happening with ISIS, and an aid worker was beheaded at the time I was there, but in Syria. So the response I got from headquarters was um, guidance sheet on how to do yoga. Hey, culturally not appropriate for some some Muslims, uh, but also doesn't work for me, right? Mm. So, you know, I I fortunately had a a boss at the time who recognised the importance of enforcing rest. Mm. Um, Plus the security situation was fantastic, was necessitated us to get out of the office at a reasonable hour. So staff were able to work, have a bit more of a rest than they would otherwise have been.
0: I've heard from several managers who would really appreciate advice because for whatever reason they're in the position they are and many of them are very good at maybe writing or digging wells or I don't know Uh, but they would really like some advice that they can put into use very practical terms in very different contexts Um, for example what what do I say to a colleague who I know is clearly struggling, but I don't know what's appropriate or within the, within the realms of the appropriateness of this context, what should I do?
1: First thing is be nice. Um, I know that sounds a bit patronising, but be sensitive or empathetic to, to your staff's needs. Also recognise that, and across the board in, in every aid operation I've worked in,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you've always been under-resourced. So... You can never get everything done. So an effective manager will brutally prioritise the workload to ensure that staff have adequate rest. Um, In terms of where they see staff experiencing stress, stress itself is not a problem per se. Uh, It depends on how the person manages it. Um, I think it's to be alert to that the the support mechanisms are around, so that is there a a counsellor available if someone needs to talk to someone? Mm -hmm. Um, Are you creating adequate space for rest in the duty station? Um, Is it a safe duty station in terms of free from um, bullying, free from harassment? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, you remember 50 Shades of Eight? Yes. You know, the the thread about guest houses. You know, like say, so I come from a Australian Western culture, which mm-hmm. is very much after work. You, you drink and you socialise and you talk a lot and you party sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have a diverse workforce, which you should, mm-hmm. that might not necessarily appeal to a lot of other cultures and they don't want to come home to, to an environment where there is drinking going on and mm-hmm. loud music and so on. So you have to think about how do you balance my needs, which is how I cope, versus the needs of a staff member who doesn't do those things. And, of course, every but every, by now, every organisation should have, fingers crossed, some guidelines on how to help staff in this situation.
0: Mm-hmm. This is uh, touching on something that we've seen in uh, the research, for example, of uh, Liza Jockins, who's with... Webster University, uh, occupational psychologist, and she has spent a lot of time working with aid workers to see how are they doing. Um, She's looking at things like burnout, anxiety, depression, PTSD, but also this idea of negative coping mechanisms like hazardous drinking. And it's interesting to see how these manifest differently depending on the context, but it's definitely... In the aid community, we're seeing more prevalence than, for example, in uh, other contexts. I mean, we see it in the military too, and other helping professions, et cetera. But it's it's interesting there. And one of the things she talks about touches on what you had said earlier. Uh, a lot of people, when they are going to bed at night, and they might be ruminating, um, they, they of course could have been through something very traumatic, which can be on their mind. A lot of times, they're replaying in their mind a conversation they had with the work colleague that's really bothering them. Maybe that's a, a, a bullying situation. Maybe it's a toxic work environment. Maybe it's just a really dysfunctional setup where the stress load, the workload is just not being managed um, to the best that it could be. And that's part of the reason why in our initiative now we're looking at pe- People management, we're looking at mental health, and we're also looking at organizational culture and how these things combine. Um, Do you want to say anything else on this topic of workplace culture and organizational culture? What are some ingredients you think need to be invested in, cultivated to, to have that kind of support for people who are in
1: stressful situations? I'm not sure the case is today, but certainly when I first became an aid worker, I was given a two hour briefing by Care Australia in Canberra and put on a plane. Um, there is generally no induction. So in the UN, induction might happen three, six months later, perhaps, um, that there was an option. Uh, so people in terms of the onboarding process mm-hmm. are not made aware of the redress mechanisms when there is a problem in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Often it's a matter of reaching out to colleagues, or 50 shades of aid, or getting online doing research to work out how do I actually make a complaint That's a problem. Um, often individuals, and of course I'm generalising here, often individuals are not themselves prepared for work in, um, in the aid world. Uh, and a lot of what happens in the A world in terms of the stress, the workplace culture, et cetera, does happen in the private sector and it happens in government. So it's not always unique to our sector, but you're exposed to additional stresses of being far from family and friends, in a typical duty station, exposed to various traumas which you might not be might not get exposed to elsewhere. So staff members need to have their own, in other words, resilience, but they need to be aware of how they can sort of self, look after themselves better mm-hmm. and look after self, self-care self better mm-hmm. and to recognise themselves when they start seeing either themselves or others display unhealthy coping mechanisms. Um, and I think, across, certainly, and again, my knowledge is a little bit stale now,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but generally I didn't think that was ever present in the aid world. I think perhaps ICRC might do it better than others, or but I'm not sure.
0: One of the things we're doing now with the initiative is we're supporting conversations in different contexts in uh, the Middle East, in Africa in Asia and Europe, uh, to try to understand from different organizational perspectives and different individuals who are working maybe from a staff care perspective or a management perspective or other work, what, what are some of the barriers to the duty of care and what can we do together collectively? And one of the things that keeps coming up is this issue of stigma. And I was hoping now you could tell us about your initiative, Uncomfortable Re- Revolution, especially as it relates to topics that might have a taboo around them or stigma. And, and yeah, what, what do you want to say about
1: that? Uncomfortable Revolution is a social enterprise that we're focused on raising issues and awareness around uh, disability and long-term chronic illness. And one thing that's very apparent is that there's a lot of ignorance about illness, physical and mental, and disability, and there's a lot of stigma around it. So whether it's the issue of um, people who are partly ambulatory, so you can be in a wheelchair some of the time Mm -hmm. um, and the amount of abuse people get when they're seen to be in a wheelchair and then stand up, people accuse them of faking it, of not needing a handicap, um, you know, disabled parking uh, uh, placard um, or faking it at an airport. Um, You have the whole thing with cancer where it's the common refrain of you don't look sick, I am my wife's former boss joked that how could I be ill if I was on Twitter so much? Mm. Um, there is issues of people, um, bodily functions, there's issues of people who need to go to the toilet, who need to get to access to a disabled toilet, but can't because there just aren't enough of them. Or I read a story recently of someone in London who went out for an evening, this is last year, of course, before COVID, so she had her last drink in the morning, so she could go out in the evening without having to go to the toilet. Uh, so basically people would dehydrate themselves to try and have a social life. So all these sort of complex things that people experience. Mm-hmm. And then on the mental health side, enormous stigma mm. um, surrounds everything from people who have bipolar disorder to um, PTSD to CPTSD, etc. And um, and the more I learn about it, I realise that I have um, unconscious bias against mental illness as well. You know, it's harden up, don't cry, don't display emotions, you know, pain is weakness leaving the body type quotes. So then as an adult being strong mentally, and then either you or loved ones struggle with mental illness, mm-hmm. it's a real challenge to try, to try and isolate that. Out of your own head and say okay what's my unconscious bias about this person who can't cope um, and when i'm not thinking i will still sometimes snap back into well just harden up or just be happy which is totally <laughs> ignorant absolutely wrong and i i've gone through burnout and um a very deep part of deeply sad part of my life mm-hmm. um but even though i've gone through it i still sometimes have that unconscious bias of people are faking it or why can't people just get over it so people who are never exposed to mental illness mm-hmm. who haven't experienced it themselves i can understand where that bias comes from because they perceive that why can't you just be happy yeah you know um so it's so stigma is a, a constant struggle um and i think the more people you know, to use the expression from the LGBTQ mm-hmm. community, come out yes. with mental illness or come out with a, with a particular disorder. Um, it's quite helpful.
0: I agree. The reason I was laughing is not because I think it's funny. I just, when you said, someone says, be happy, that happened to me.
1: <laughs> <Okay>.
0: <laughs> I, uh, I had my own burnout and then I had a depression. Um, and, yeah, people would just tell me to smile lighten up, yeah. You know, be happy. And I, I wouldn't be sensitive to that if I hadn't gone through it myself. But now that I'm sensitive to, it, I'm looking for examples of people who are going, like you're saying, coming out and talking about their own experience. And I was really moved by some videos that uh, your organization has put out there on, I, I found on YouTube, but maybe... People can go directly to the website or other places. Um, for example, a story by Joy, who had a depression growing up, and she talks about her personal story there. And I thought there was so much there I could connect to. And uh, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about these uh, testimonials, these stories.
1: Yes, we, we did a fellowship a number of years ago, and Kelly Powley, a Canadian director and editor, uh, has collaborated with us to produce a series of 10 interviews, looking at a range of mental illnesses. And the way that Kelly's been able to edit the interviews uh, is quite incredible because it really brings out particular aspects of mental illness that's not often talked about. Mm -hmm. And so we we are gonna cover PTSD. There's um, some very good insights into OCD that are coming up. Mm -hmm. Um, And we actually do hope that these videos have a long shelf life mm-hmm. and help inform discussions because I think we deliberately made them to be like between five and seven minutes mm-hmm. so that they are easily digestible. Um, uh, yeah, and the series finishes in mid-December, so we launch every Saturday, uh, New York time at ten at uh, nine a.m. The next episodes.
0: Ten a.m. Excellent. So then we can also look forward, we, we should subscribe.
1: Yes please, subscribe to, to us on YouTube.
0: On YouTube, okay good. So we should subscribe and then we'll be notified every Saturday when the new video comes. Yes. Okay, fantastic. Um, one of the things I noticed in the videos I have seen so far is this idea, it's really important to talk to someone that you trust and to reach out. And I think that's something we're seeing in a lot of the work we're doing now is just the power of having conversations with people you trust. Um, Just knowing that you're not alone, that this is something that so many people are going through. And I think especially now during COVID, um, some people are feeling isolated or some people are feeling overwhelmed. Um, Just the idea that they're not alone. There are a lot of other people going through this and to be able to reach out and connect can really it be one of the first steps in trying to, to cope. What do you think?
1: Yes, but there's a danger. Okay. A dear friend of mine uh, has been really struggling with de- depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and she reached out to a good friend of hers to talk about what she was experiencing. And her good friend was so dismissive. Hmm because she had the stigma, the bias, right? Mm -hmm. So even though this friend, in fact, had a sister who died of brain cancer Mm -hmm. and has experienced a lot of trauma herself recently, did the usual responses of think positive. Why are you taking antidepressant medication? Um, You know, have you tried yoga? What about exercising? How much vitamin D are you getting? Very much an issue of um, victim-blaming. Mm-hmm. That somehow the person with the mountain lilies was not only responsible for the cause of it, but also that their cure, for want of a, a better word, um, was also their responsibility. So if you find that in your network of trusted friends there is unconscious bias, there is stigma, then the person can feel more isolated. So I do feel that there is a need for you know, uh, a professional helpline Mm-hmm. counselling service mm-hmm. um, even if it's for the trusted friend to, to speak to that counselling first service first and say hey I'm not I've never experienced this before but how do I help my friend who's just told me they're they're depressed um you know it's like um, I, I think you Melissa do you know Imogen Wall yes okay so Imogen's a good friend of mine and, and she's been doing this thing with uh in the UK about a mental first aid mm-hmm. training um so i think that if you really do want to help someone on a more regular basis mm-hmm. you have to have some level of training because you can actually be more do more harm when you uh, seek to help someone without knowing what you're doing in terms of physical health it is no different If you it becomes a car accident and someone's car was overturned and you grab the person from the car and drag them out of it it's on fire of course you could you could cause spinal injury a whole ton of things so in order to respond to someone's physical uh, first aid you need to know what you're doing right um, so similarly i think you should need to know what you're doing when it comes to mental health
0: that's so true a lot of people who might come and talk about the issues that they're facing because they know that you've done it yourself or you've been through it yourself I, at least once you've come to me i I think one of the most helpful things is to be able to have a list of professionals that they can approach um, if they're willing to go that route. And the aid world is very complicated when people are spread out to so many locations and coming from so many different cultures. What is the most appropriate place to go? But But you're right, it needs to be people need to be connected to those who have the right backgrounds and training to to support can be
1: very complicated. It can. And for example, in certain evangelical faiths, Mm -hmm. um, psychiatric medicine, counseling Mm -hmm. therapy outside the realm of religion is really frowned upon. Mm -hmm. It's something you don't do. It's, it's, you turn to God for help. Um, You know, so if you've got a diverse workforce, it's really hard to have a boilerplate help number. You know that's going to work in Cote d'Ivoire and it's going to work in Kenya and it's going to work in, you know, Ukraine. Um, so it really has to be that deliberate effort by an organisation to make sure that when it talks about mental health, it really looks at the needs of the workforce and the geographic location.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you would like to share? with us before we begin to wrap up our conversation?
1: I think one thing that's always sort of played on my mind, I know this because of uh, a number of colleagues from the NGO community who've had um, both physical and mental health issues, is that if you work for, say, the Children Care, Oxfam, or a ton of other NGOs Mm -hmm. on a short-term contract, Mm -hmm. And three years later, you have PTSD, or five years later, your back finally gives out after a car accident you had, and you, you know, are Kenyan and you work for Care USA or whatever. Trying to get support from an, a former employee uh, for injuries that happened in the workplace are virtually impossible, and that's in strong con- contrast to, you know, Australia, and a lot of other countries where, you know, if if I work in Australia in my company contributed to my illness or uh, whatever years later I still have legal recourse to get their assistance um, that doesn't exist in the aid world uh, particularly with such transitory contracts so I think the concept of how do you do portable health insurance or some way to make sure that long after an event uh, happens that your duty of care continues that stuff member, because it doesn't end the day the person's contract ends and you do a half hour online HR, chat about their departure. So that's an issue. Mm -hmm. And also, and I raised this many years ago, I don't think we have the data we need. Often this is an issue of Mm -hmm. self-reporting. It's it's not just anecdotal. There's some studies that you've talked about, but I think we need to get a better grip of what is the data within the sector on mental and physical health and then do that comparison across other sectors and then try and find... What are the other sectors that are most like the aid world? And are we trying to benchmark ourselves against that? And I don't know if that's feasible.
0: I think in the conversation that Marianne had with Imogen, we talked about how some sectors are just a little bit or very far ahead of where we are. For example, you mentioned the military. Um, I see... Every day, I'm looking for articles on these topics, and that so much is coming out of the healthcare sector. So, I think that could definitely be useful to see where we are and to track it over time.
1: Yes, I mean, I've changed my view about the military in terms of some things, but you know, I left the Australian Army in 1999. Until I die, I'm guaranteed 100% coverage for substance abuse disorders, cancer mental health issues, um, without having to prove any relationship, any cause and effect with my military service. Because the the government said, yeah, look, it's probable that that military service contributed to some of these medical conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think I'd be struggling to go back to the UN or to CARE, and actually CARE was a very good employer, generally, to to get assistance now.
0: Yes, this is an issue I've heard from several people that they're only now able to realise they have an issue but their contracts are no longer in effect so they don't know where they can go
1: or if they can get anything back. Yes, where a friend of mine recently presented a case to the UN Disputes Tribunal around a particular incident at a UN agency and the agency settled before it went to the tribunal and the former staff member had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. So they can never talk about... The abuse they can never talk about the fact that the agency admitted liability the fact that the agency paid them um and i understand why the agency does that uh, from a management perspective but it means there's all these hidden things that happen yeah. and there's no recourse and the people's names are never published that that person was a bully or that person committed harassment so i think the, the transparency around this from a management perspective is still pretty poor
0: Wow, Brendan, we've taken a tour on all of the things that we're thinking about in the initiative, and you've just uh, really uh, helped us to think through these things, because you've been thinking about it a lot longer than I have, at least. Um, And I'm really so grateful to you for taking the time to be with us and for the work that you have done already before in the run-up to World Humanitarian Summit, and now with Uncomfortable Revolution, um, just really important stuff that we definitely need to support. So I want to thank you for your time, Brendan. And uh, do you want to put a shout out for people who want to learn more about you? How can they get to know what you're doing
1: now? Um, well, I'm on Twitter, on at seven, the number 7 dot mm-hmm. com, which is French for seven pillars. Mm-hmm. And Our website is www.viewrevolution, which is short for uncomfortablerevolution.com.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Brendan. And thanks to everyone who's been listening, signing out, and have a great day. You've been listening to Melissa Pitati in conversation with Brendan McDonald of Uncomfortable Revolution. This is Embodying Change, a podcast about cultivating care and compassion in need and development. The show is edited by Ziada Abaid. If you enjoyed the show, you can help us in three ways. First, you can share the show with your people. Second, you can leave us a review to help others find us. And third, you can make suggestions for a future episode by emailing us at compassionateorg and chsalliance.org. We're open to your feedback and we're on the lookout for examples of good practice in the sector. We will be back soon with another show exploring care and compassion in aid in development. Till then, take care and be compassionate with yourself.